You are listening to Pastor Fred Neal III of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, The God Who Hates Religion, recorded on August the 28th, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Fred as he preaches. Well, we're uh, coming to the end of this series through the book of Psalms. Not really through the book of Psalms, but in the book of Psalms. Uh, Pastor Mike's going to preach the last sermon next weekend. And so I'm going to take us through Psalm 50 today. Psalms is a very diverse book. There's a lot of different material, a lot of different ground being covered in the book of Psalms. And I think, um, you know, some of those, some of those Psalms are very easy for us to know how to understand and in- interpret and apply to our lives as New Testament Christians, which in a lot of ways is very different than Old Testament Jews. Uh, some of it's a little more tricky and difficult. And so you get all of that in Psalms. There's a, such a, a diversity there. And so we've enjoyed some of that diversity through this sermon series. And today I want to take us to a psalm that perhaps on the surface level, you're like, what's this have to do with us? But I think if you just scratch a little bit below the surface, you'll see there's a lot there for us today. And so we're going to be in Psalm 50 together. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there now. If you do not have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. But if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it. That's kind of why, why it's there. You brought it, so you might as well open it and uh, leave it open to Psalm 50. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in there today. Um, and then if you are taking notes, of course, you can write down the other scriptural references that we'll get to in a little bit. Let's start with Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness for God Himself is judge. Hear, O people, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says... What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things I have These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, 
you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, open our hearts and our minds to receive and to see your goodness and your glory and to appropriately apply this to our lives. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. A couple of observations I want to make from Psalm 50, and then we want to get into the content of the psalm itself and how we can apply that to our lives today. And so if you have your message application points out, let's go ahead and fill in the first set of blanks there, which is this. God speaks and makes himself known. One of the things that that immediately jumps out to me as I look at Psalm 50 is not necessarily the content, but the fact that God speaks. Cultures all throughout human history have always wrestled with the concept of God and who he is and what he's like. I think that's it's something that, you know, as human beings comes very natural to us. Our very consciousness demands that we wrestle with this idea of, of what is all of this? How did this get here? How did we get here? Where do we belong in all of creation? And so mankind has always wrestled with the issue of God. We've come up with all sorts of ideas, ways of understanding who He is and what He's like. But at the end of the day, there's this simple truth found in the Bible. God speaks and makes Himself known. Our culture is confused about this. Our our culture has come to the conclusion that if there is a God, which many times we we deny that there is, if there is a God, he's, He's beyond our understanding or He has not revealed Himself in a way that we could know Him. And so therefore, all ideas about God are equally valid. What you say about God and what you say about God and what somebody else says about God, who can really know? How can we have any confidence in, in who he is and what he's like? And therefore, the, all ideas are, are the same. Some would even suggest they're all just different ways of getting to the same God. But the Bible, from beginning to end, is God's self revelation. This tells us something very important about God's nature and about his character. He is a God who reveals himself. He makes himself known. He tells us what he's like. He tells us what he wants. He tells us why he created us. He tells us things about ourselves and about him and about his creation. All of these things that we need to know. If you've ever been in a relationship with someone who has a lot of expectations that they never, never actually verbalize. In other words, if you've ever been married to a woman... If you've ever been in a relationship where someone doesn't tell you what they want, you know it's difficult. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to have a a proper relationship with somebody who does not make themselves known, who does not explicitly state who they are and what they want and, and how they desire to relate to you. It's a beautiful truth of Scripture that God speaks and makes Himself known. God is not some mysterious, unknowable, impersonal force. 
He is a personal God. He comes and he shows himself. He reveals himself. He speaks and makes known what we need to know. Now, that's not to say that God tells us everything we want to know, but indeed, he tells us everything we need to know to relate to him properly, to understand who he is, what he wants, and how we should live. That is one of the greatest truths in all of Scripture. Because if God doesn't do that, what hope do we have? Can we ascend to him? No, he must come to us, and so he does. And he actually uses words that we understand. Sometimes they're, they're, they're difficult, I understand that. It's not as if everything is so plainly stated, but God gives us his Holy Spirit and he helps us. He reveals himself to us. Furthermore, he comes in human form in Jesus Christ, and he makes himself known. The God of the universe the infinite, eternal God tells us who he is. And so from Genesis to Revelation, we have God explaining himself, revealing himself, speaking and letting us know who he is and what he wants. And so that is not necessarily what Psalm 50 tells us, but it reminds us of that. So with that sort of as a parenthesis about the nature of God, let's look at what Psalm 50 says. When God comes and speaks, what does he say? Verses 4 through 7, or 4 through 6, let me read. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. So the first thing that we see here when God speaks, this is what he, he reveals. He reveals that he is the judge of his people. Now in this context, of course, this is the nation of Israel. And so he says, gather to me my people. We know that because it's, it says here, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The nation of Israel entered into covenant with God by sacrifice, just like he told them to. So these are his people. But we know from the rest of scripture that God is not only judge of his people, he is judge of all people. God judge, judges all of the earth and everyone who walks in it. And so the next thing on your map is simply this. God is the judge of all people. Some people say silly things like, only God can judge me. Usually, not, maybe not always, usually when someone says that, they're saying, what I'm doing is none of your business. I'm not accountable to you. I don't need to be held to your standard. Only God can judge me. The problem with that is that in reality, God is the last person you want to judge you. It's true that, that human judgment at times can be unfair. It, it, at times, human judgment can be unjust. But when you stop and think about it, Human beings only know so much about you. There's only so much they can convict and condemn you of. You know such a small percentage of the bad things that I have done. God judges every thought. He judges every word that leaves my tongue, even the ones spoken when no one else was there or perhaps under my breath. He judges every deed, even the ones that we think 
were done in secret. And furthermore, God does not not judge by the substandard human judgment that we judge each other with. His standard is much higher. He judges out of perfection, out of complete righteousness and holiness. And so when God judges you, he judges you thoroughly. Every thought, every word, every deed. And he judges by his holy and perfect standard. Therefore, only God can judge me as no comfort at all. Jesus says, don't fear man who can kill your body and do no more. All they can do is kill you. He says, but fear God, who can kill your body and send your soul to hell. God is the judge of all people. God calls into account every man and woman. And so he says in Psalm 50, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. When God judges, even the heavens speak of his righteousness and the earth does not hide, but the earth exposes who we are and what we have done. And before this judge, who can stand? Who can stand? Not me, not you, not any of us. And so he comes to judge. What is, what is his judgment? So let me stop right here and just say, okay, God is do- going to declare his judgment of the nation of Israel. And I've already read it. It's, it's not pretty. This is a psalm of rebuke. This is, this is God getting down to business with his people. And he uses strong words. This is, this is not Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd and he comes alongside me and he takes care of me. This is Psalm 50. God the judge has come and a fire goes before him, it says. And a, a wild storm surrounds him. He is coming to speak judgment. Now we might take comfort and say, well, at least I'm not Old Testament Israel. God's not speaking to me. I think, as we unpack this a little bit, you'll see we are guilty of the very same things in a different way. And so let's listen closely and let's look at together of how this might apply to us 2,000 2000 years after Jesus He says here, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. We'll come back to that. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. But he says in verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So there's a lot in here, certainly more than we can cover in the next few minutes. So let me just sort of address 
what I think is the general idea that emerges and seems to be the crux of the matter here. It's this, that God doesn't want heartless religious acts done by people who think that he is appeased by the favors they've done him. In other words, God hates religion. He doesn't accept payoffs or bribes. You can't, you can't simply throw God a bone once a week and think that he is impressed. He hates such behavior and judges it sharply. Our culture is full of all kinds of examples of this. We see this time and time again. You have, you have pop stars who, who perform songs about all kinds of ungodlessness. And then they win an award and they get up and sometimes the first thing out of their mouth is, I want to thank God. Or athletes who, who, who travel from city to city committing all kinds of sexual immorality with dozens of women and then they win a Super Bowl and the first thing they say is, first of all, I want to thank God for this. Or nobody's from Western PA, just like us, who live our lives any way we want, doing anything that pleases us, and we go to church, sing a couple songs, maybe drop a couple bucks in the offering, and say, there, God, aren't you happy? God hates religion, if that's what we mean by religion. If we think that by simply saying a a few prayers or including him in our language from time to time, or avoiding a few sins that we think are, are very bad or worse than others, if we think that by that God is pleased, he's got something to say. Psalm 50. The problem here in this passage is not what they are doing but rather how they are doing it. Let's look again. He says in verse 8, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. They were doing the right things. They were doing exactly what God had commanded in terms of their outward behavior. They were offering the required sacrifices. He says, your burnt offerings are continually before me. And, And you get the sense here that so much so he's a little bit fed up These burnt offerings, which they're continually offering to him, are serving as a reminder to him that their hearts are far from him. So he says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. You're not doing the wrong thing. You're doing it the wrong way. And so he says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fields. Every beast of the force is already mine. I already own all of that. You're bringing me something that already belongs to me and you think that's what I require. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Then he says this stinging, stinging phrase in verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. There's nothing God needs from you. He has no need of anything you can bring him. He has it all. He created all of this. He was happy and satisfied and content long before you existed. And he will go on being happy and satisfied and content long after your life on this earth. You have nothing he needs. 
But there is something he wants. He wants your heart. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? <laughs> All these sacrifices. You think I, I commanded these sacrifices because I wanted the meat? Do I drink the blood of goats? Was it because I was thirsty that I commanded these sacrifices? Offer to God instead a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. So here's the picture. We got these people who are, they're just full of religious activity. There's no shortage of that. These are not atheists. These are not people who are worshiping some other pagan god. These are people who are doing what God had commanded. They're offering sacrifices. This was the system that he set up for them to be able to relate to him, and they're doing it. But they're doing it out of religious obligation. They're doing it outwardly, but inwardly, nothing's going on. They're just going through the motions. Now, let me ask you, is that something that only happened 3,000 years ago when this psalm was written, or is that something that happens today? Is that a trap that you and I are tempted to fall into? And so let's, let's think about where we're at in this. God doesn't need anything from me. He doesn't need me to come to church. He doesn't need me to sing these songs. He's already glorified. He's, he, he said at one point, if people will stop singing to him, he could raise up stones to sing his glory. He doesn't need that from you. He wants from you your heart. So let's ask this question then. Why? Why is God, if you will, why is God so hard to please? Why isn't it enough that we would take three, four hours out of our Sunday and gather and sing and, and do whatever, whatever it is that we do? Why is that not enough? Why would God be so picky so as to say to people who are doing exactly what He told them to in a sense, I am not pleased with what you're doing. That is an important question. You have to ask that question today. If you don't understand the, God's answer to that question, you won't understand Psalm 50. You won't understand just about anything else that we do. Why does God demand so much from His people? The answer is that because He loves us. He loves you and He knows exactly how you work. He knows what you need and He knows how to give it to you. The reason God is so particular about these things is because He's particular about you. 
He's particular about your happiness, about your satisfaction. He's particular about your life and your future and ultimately about your eternity. And he knows that these outward religious behaviors do not get us to where we need to be. Religion that falls short of truly knowing and worshiping God. This is the next thing on the map. Religion that falls short of truly knowing and worshiping God deceives us. It causes people to stop short of what they really need, which is God himself. Did you know that God, the creator of the universe, made you in such a way that you are not happy, nor content, nor satisfied until you have him? It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to do all these things on the outside. What he knows you ultimately need is for your heart to be turned toward him. Only then will you experience why he created you. Only then will you know the reason that you truly exist. And so God, if you will, hates religion. If by religion we mean this outward religious behavior that stops short of truly knowing and enjoying Him. He hates it. He rebukes it. He commands His people to turn from it. He says, I will not receive those sacrifices until your heart understands why you're doing it. This is the interesting thing is this happens This can happen to believers and non-believers alike. Christians, we fall into these traps all the time. That's normal. That's to be expected. We get into these ruts where we just sort of go through the motions. We say the right things. We sing the songs. We show up. We participate. But our hearts have have grown cold. And we're not truly enjoying Him. We're not truly relating to him on the basis of his grace and his mercy and his love for us. We've become more religious than we have been relational. And God God rebukes that. He commands that we stop and that we turn our hearts towards him. That's why he says in verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. A sacrifice of thanksgiving. You can give a bull and your heart not be in it, but you can't sing thanksgiving to him. You cannot give a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise and your heart not be in it. He says, worship me from your heart. Give to me the one thing that I truly want, your heart. Because when you do, you will be satisfied in me. There's nothing else that can fill that void. There's nothing in this world that can do what worship of the one true God can do. There's not enough money. There's not enough vacation time. There's not enough sensual indulgence. There's not enough fame. There's not enough years to live on this earth that can satisfy your human soul the way God wants it to be satisfied in Him. And so that is why, that is why God commands this type of worship. For our own good, 
for our own satisfaction so that we could enjoy him. And so believers, Christians, when we fall into this rut of just going through the motions, we need to allow the word of God to remind us, to correct us. This isn't about what we're doing on the outside. It's about what's going on on the inside. But it's not just Christians that fall into this trap. Non-believers do this too. And I think that the stakes are much, much higher when non-believers fall into this deception of believing that outward religious behavior pleases or appeases God. The stakes are so much higher because their eternal destiny depends on it. They're going to die one day and stand before God and be judged. And if they have not done what He required of them, they will be found guilty. And remember, this judge judges every thought, word, and deed. Who can stand before Him? The consequence of this mistake is eternal. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 7. He says perhaps some of the most frightful words in all of Scripture. Because I, th- I think there are, I know there are people. There are people who are deceived into thinking they have done what God has required. That they, out of their outward religious obligatory behavior have pleased God and that they can confidently stand before Him and know that He will judge them as righteous. There are people that believe these things. Jesus says so in Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's no greater mistake to make in life than to make the mistake that you are right with God when you are not. And so we must understand clearly what God has revealed in His Word to be salvation. Is it enough to be religious? Listen to these people, their own words. Did we not? I mean, they're doing better things than us. And Jesus says, I never knew you. It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to have this thing together on the outside. Jesus must make it into your heart. He must bring about a change of heart that says, I get it now. I understand why I do these things. I understand why we sing Amazing Grace. I understand why we sing about all these songs about what Jesus has done on the cross. Now it's, it's in my heart. It's not just in my head. It has become something that, that I do out of passionate thanksgiving, worshipful praise for Him. But many people are deceived by this. So let's look at what, what, is, what does God say in Psalm 50 of such people. He says, but to the wicked, 
God says this, What right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? Here, Listen, we're not talking about atheists. We're not talking about people who don't believe in God. These are, are part of the assembly. These are people who are coming and participating. These are people who are taking His words on their lips. In our context today, they're singing the songs. They're saying the right things. They've got the lingo down. They know what to say, when to say it, and how to say it. But God judges rightly. He says, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. you. You come and you say all the right things, but then you go and you live something different you, with no regard to what my word says. No regard whatsoever. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil. And your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. You thought, you thought this was cool with me. You thought you were getting away with it. You thought you had done everything that needed to be done to appease me. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Why? Why does God use such strong language? God rebukes, this is the next thing on your map, God rebukes false religion and improper worship to save us from ourselves and to offer Himself to us. God rebukes this false religion this improper worship, to save us from it, to save us from who we are, and to offer himself to us. His rebukes here, are, they're an act of love. He does not want these folks to continue in this way, to be recipients of his wrath. He wants them to experience his kindness and his mercy. But their religion is getting in the way. Then he says, he says this in 22 and 23, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver you. But here's where the psalm takes a turn, this expected turn that, that, that so often comes in God's word, even in the midst of such harsh words. It says this, The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. God brings this rebuke to prepare the way for salvation. And so we ought to be open to his, his rebuke, his warning, because on the heels of his rebuke is his offer of salvation to any who would turn, to any who would change, to one who, who orders his way rightly, he says, I will show the salvation of God. This is where things kind of start to get good for us a little bit. So we're under His judgment and we realize we fall short. We get it, right? None of us are doing this, doing this as well as we need to be. None of us are doing this right. We're, we're all falling into these traps and into the, the sin that so easily deceives us. And then God comes and He says, turn to Me, I will show you salvation. And what is the salvation of God? 
the salvation of God that, that he would show these people from a different perspective one day because these folks all lived long before Jesus. The salvation he would one day show them is that eternal life is through faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sin. That's the salvation he would show them. I wonder what that's like from their perspective. I don't want to wander too long because I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us that perhaps can be unhealthy. But, but when God was ready to send forth his son into the world, did he perhaps gather around him the souls in heaven who had faithfully followed him in the Old Testament and say, here, there's something I want you to see. And how they must have rejoiced in seeing the salvation of our Lord. And we, from this perspective, God has, made clear, has clearly proclaimed and made plain to us all to see that salvation is to be found in none other than Jesus Christ on the cross. And so that's what he offers. That's his offering. He says, to those of you that would turn your hearts, those of you that, who, who would stop with all of this religiosity and all of this, this foolish man-made effort to please me and who would turn your heart to me and with gratefulness and thanksgiving and by faith trust in me, here's what I offer. Salvation in Jesus Eternal life through faith in Jesus who died on the cross. That is our only hope of salvation. And to all who will turn to Him and repent of sin and glorify Him as God, He gives His grace and His mercy. The judge who sees every thought, word, and deed offers mercy because Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid that penalty for sin. So let me just share with you in our last few minutes here, let me just share with you from the New Testament some of the goodness of this salvation. John 1, 12. Write down these, these references, if you will. If you're taking notes, you can write down the references, but don't attempt to turn there because we're going to move quickly. John 1, 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's what he gives. He gives the right to become children in God. Jesus would say in, in chapter 3 of John, when he's talking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't see it. So, so here's Jesus' life for our life. And so the Bible refers to this as being born again because we must die to our old self, like, like Kevin said earlier, Galatians 2.20, and we come alive in new life to, with Him. Jesus' life is our life. And so John 3 says you must be born again. But many resist this. Many prefer their religion over a relationship with Jesus. Many prefer to, to keep it, let's say, on the outside. Let's just do what seems right on the outside. In, God, in, in, in the New Testament, 
God has just as strong of a rebuke for such people. Jesus was interacting with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were, they were, they were challenging Jesus because his disciples weren't obeying their religious practices. Not the ones that God had given, but the ones that they had made up and added to that. His disciples weren't obeying, and so they challenged him. And Jesus said, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God does not want mere lip service. He wants heart worship. He would go on in Matthew 23. He would say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. You have to think about this image for a second. What is a whitewashed tomb? Well, he explains it. Which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do you see clearly here that God does not accept outward religious behavior? He only accepts hearts that are changed by the gospel, that are changed by the the life and death of Jesus Christ who went to the cross. That's what he says to religious people, but to those whose hearts are open, he makes wonderful promises. He promises that he will come in and have fellowship with them. You know, it's very cliche, I understand, but it's very true. We often say that Christianity, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. That's true. It's not about being religious. It's not about what you're doing on the outside. Though outside behavior is important when it's reflective of inward change. It's not about your religion. It's about your relationship with Jesus. Jesus says in Revelation 3, Those whom I love, I I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. To Old Testament Israel, who constantly was earning God's rebuke and correction. And as he throughout the Old, the Old Testament history, often sends other nations in to punish them and to, to get their attention and turn them back to him. He says through Jeremiah to the nation of Israel words that, that I think are just as appropriate for us. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God has revealed himself. What is it that he wants? He wants you to seek him with all your heart. He wants you to know him relationally, to enjoy fellowship with the creator of the universe and the creator of you and of your soul. He created you for that very reason. 
And so I want to ask a couple of questions, and I I just want to encourage you, be honest before God. I want to ask you a couple of questions here as as we begin to close. Did you come here today to check God off your list? Did you come here today thinking, well, if I just go to church, it makes everything else okay. If I go to church, everything I do the rest of the week is fine. Sunday morning, I give that to God. Did you come here to appease your conscience? Perhaps to appease someone else, someone you live with, or someone who cares about you, who, who, who bugs you to come to church, maybe nags you to come to church. Did you come here for somebody else, like a spouse, or a parent, or even a child, because your child wanted to be here? Did you come here today because you plan on using your church attendance to justify yourself before God one day? If so, good. (laughs) You did the right thing. I don't think it's ever wrong to come to church. Just like those Old Testament Israelites who are offering the sacrifices, you didn't do the wrong thing, you did the right thing. But you're not there yet. You haven't done everything. You haven't done what he actually wants you to do, which is from your heart to seek him. And so regardless of why you're here, just thank God that you're here. But now what? Now what are you going to do with the fact that you're here? Because that's not what he asked for. What he asked for was your heart. And I know there's, there's, I know there's some church kids here today. And you're, you're just here because your parents made you. I get it. I have kids. I make them go to church too. But that's not what God asks of you. And so let me just speak to those kids just here for a moment. Those church kids that are here. I know maybe you don't want to be here. Maybe you don't like it here. Maybe your parents aren't even good Christians. Maybe when, when you get home, that's it. They've, they've, they've done what I just explained. They've checked God off their list, and the rest of the week, they're, 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 they don't live anything like what they just pretended to live like now in church. Maybe they're great Christians. Maybe they're so great that you feel like you can never live up to their standard. Wherever, wherever you're at in that, if you're here today because a parent brought you, that is the kindness and grace of God in your life that he wanted you to be here today because he loves you. He doesn't love you because of your parents or your grandparents. He doesn't love you because of what they do or of who they are. He loves you because you're you. And he created you to know him and to enjoy him and to worship him. And so you church kids, you listen God wants you to seek him with your whole heart. So get to know him. Thank God that he gave you parents who drag you to church because they are giving you the greatest gift they could ever give you, an opportunity to experience him and to know him and enjoy him. If you're here today for any reason other than just to enjoy God and worship him, Consider that path that you're on. Consider the words of Psalm 50 and of all the other verses that I read to you today and consider what it means to truly know and to worship the God who created you. In a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to get right with him if that's what you need today. But let me, let me first just say one more thing to Christians. Christians, 
Has your love grown cold? Have you resorted to, like we all do at times, have you resorted to just going through the motions? For whatever, however you got there, it doesn't really matter, does it? However you ended up there, that's, that's a rut that today you need to climb out of. And you need to ask God, and I'm going to ask God with you to set your heart on fire for Him again so that you can worship Him from the inside and not just with the outside. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.